Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a lesson in decision making from poker. And when peer review goes sour, I'm Sharmini Bandel. And I'm Nick Cow. First up, how do you make a decision? Go with your gut, toss a coin, or simply roll the dice? Well, chances are that you do not think about your options probabilistically, weighing up the likelihoods of each outcome. Nothing personal, just generally humans are quite bad at thinking in this way. But there's perhaps a game that can help you with that. Poker. When it comes to playing the hand you're dealt, making a decision in life, mathematician John von Neumann thought that poker was perfect practice. He thought that poker was the perfect game to mirror strategic human decision-making because, like life, it's a game of incomplete information. This is Maria Konnikova, a writer and former academic psychologist who's written a book about poker and decision-making called The Biggest Bluff. After reading von Neumann's musings on poker and how it had helped him develop a mathematical model for human decision-making, also known as game theory... Maria wondered whether playing poker could help her understand uncertainty and make better decisions. For her, this was something particularly pressing, as she'd been through a period of personal strife, with bereavement, job losses and health issues all affecting her and her family. And just all of these things happening within just weeks of each other made me realise that we just... We really overestimate often how much control we have over things. And I thought, I want to figure this out. I want to try to dive into this further. This wasn't necessarily the first time Maria had been thinking about decision-making. In a previous life, she had researched decision-making at grad school. But with the extra push from her personal life, she decided to dive into this further again, to better understand how to make decisions in an uncertain world. But this time, she took an unusual step. She took a year out to play professional poker. 
even though she didn't know how many cards are in her deck. I knew nothing about poker. I mean, zero. Despite this, after a lot of practice with professional players, Maria got into the pro poker scene. But at her first big tournaments, she did not do so well. I think you you um, understated it somewhat. I mean, I <laughs> I lost a lot of money at the beginning. I mean, it was a very steep learning curve, and the bottom of it was not pleasant. But after these setbacks, and with some psychology know-how and a dose of luck, within months, she was very successful. In fact, she won over $84,000, beating out hundreds of competitors at a prestigious poker tournament. But importantly, she found that poker really helped her think probabilistically. At every hand in poker, you have to estimate the odds of each person holding certain cards, and weigh this up against your own hand. All the while, everyone is trying to deceive you. For Maria, hundreds of rounds of this intense probabilistic thinking helped her make better decisions. Whether it's as simple as the decision to have breakfast or not, or your future career choices... Maria thinks that if you want to learn to decide effectively, poker could be a useful tool. In fact, it's not just a useful tool, it's just genuinely the only tool I've found in my years of psychology training that teaches you to think probabilistically correctly. We learn much better from experience, so from actually doing something from physically experiencing it ourselves than we do from description. So when someone tells us something or says, oh, the probability of this is X or Y, we're bad at kind of reading that and internalizing what it means. But if you force us to kind of go through something, we learn that way. Poker actually forces you to learn correctly. You're learning through experience, you're sampling, but you're doing so over hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of trials. This experience is mirrored by other poker players too. Poker is all about, I think he's bluffing in this situation, given everything I've seen, 80% of the time or 30% of the time or whatever it is. This is Liv Barry, an astrophysics graduate turned professional poker player. Because you're making these kind of decisions so frequently, where you're having to sort of stick a probability on your predictions, you start to really build up a good database of when you're correct and when you weren't. According to Liv, this kind of repeated reinforcement of probabilities and their consequence can help people make better decisions in real life. An example I often give is like, I needed to park somewhere, I was running late for a meeting, and I couldn't find any parking spaces anywhere, and I knew I was only going to be in the meeting for half an hour. So I was like, do I risk it and park on the double yellow line? Let's do the expected value calculation. I think a traffic warden will come along probably 10, 20% of the time. The parking ticket is like 100 quid. So on expectation, I'm going to lose about call it 15 pounds here. Would I pay 15 pounds to not be late for this meeting? Yes, I would. Okay, fine, I'll take the gamble. So whilst a fine may be 100 pounds, there's only a small chance you'll be hit with it. So realistically, if you take the risk, you're only betting a proportion of that fine. A hard thing to get your head around, but for both Maria and Liv, poker can help, as it's essentially like playing a sped-up simulation of life. Poker is definitely a great analogue for life because it emulates the messiness of life. You know, whereas a game like chess, the best player always wins, almost, almost every single time. Whereas in poker, if I sat down against a complete beginner and we only play 100 hands, I'll probably only win like 51, 52% of the time. It's only if I play someone for like 10,000 hands or more, does that edge actually start, you know, does, does it even get above like 90% likelihood that, that I'll win? So because of this sort of decoupling between results and actual quality of strategies, 
that is very much the case in life because life is very messy. There's a lot of randomness. There's a lot of unpredictable variables. Poker gives you an opportunity in a sort of more like, sounds silly, but a more like low stakes controlled environment to mess around with these these confusing things that can make decision making hard. Now, poker isn't the only game to have randomness and messiness in it. But for Maria, it's got enough elements of skill and luck to hit a sweet spot to emulate life. With enough practice, Maria thinks this life emulator will allow people to make better decisions in an uncertain world. And like life, if you go all in, poker shows you the consequences. It's funny, I talked to a man named Frank Lance who designed games for a very long time. And he told me that poker is actually really horrible game design from a modern standpoint because people think it's rigged all the time because the probabilities don't function normally. Just it's random and it's not controlled. And he said that in all modern games that you play on the computer, the designers actually screw with the random number generator because too many people complain when it's truly random. What he loves about poker is that it doesn't pander to you. It actually says, yeah, you think it's rigged? Well, here you go. That's how the deck played out. It doesn't care that you're supposed to win. There's no such thing as supposed to. Probability does not have a memory. So when you're playing most games on the computer, they are actually rigged. So just know that because otherwise people complain and think, oh, well, this doesn't make sense. I can't believe I'm losing. This is a terrible game. Poker doesn't do that. Poker just says, screw you. This is how the cards work. That was Maria Konnikova. Her new book about her poker journey and understanding decision-making is called The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself and Win. You also heard from Liv Burry, who's written a review of the book in this week's Nature. We'll pop a link to that in the show notes. Later on, we'll be having a discussion about how to keep things civil in the peer review process. I'm looking at you, reviewer too. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Dan Fox. A newly developed synthetic skin can sweat droplets of fluid when stimulated by radio waves. The fluid is stored in numerous micrometer-sized pores surrounded by liquid crystal molecules, which can move like a liquid, but when exposed to an electric field align themselves neatly like the atoms of a crystal. When the radio waves are turned on, the liquid crystal molecules twist, wringing liquid out of the pores in the process. The synthetic skin even reabsorbs excess fluid when the radio waves are turned off. Systems like this that secrete fluids on demand could be used to keep surfaces clean or to directly apply medicines. And the team behind the work have already demonstrated that the skin can release the painkiller ibuprofen. Read that research in full at Matter. Mars may be the red planet, but its atmosphere glows green. 40 years ago, researchers predicted that Mars's atmosphere should emit a green light, similar to the northern and southern lights here on Earth. But detecting this glow has proven tricky. Now a team have spotted the elusive green hue using the European Space Agency's Trace Gas Orbiter spacecraft to scan the planet's edge against the dark background of space. The glow is given off by oxygen, 
which forms when radiation from the sun breaks apart carbon dioxide in the Martian atmosphere. The researchers were able to measure the glow's intensity in both visible and ultraviolet wavelengths, and calculate a ratio between the two. They suggest that this ratio should hold true for other planets, allowing other teams to calibrate their instruments when studying emitted light in future planetary research. Shine a light on that research at Nature Astronomy. Next up, disagreement, argument, critique. These are all things at the heart of scientific research and publishing. But there's a fine line between being critical and just being rude. This week, reporter Anand Jagatia takes a look at what happens when things turn sour during peer review. There's a long-standing joke in academia about the dreaded Reviewer 2. Reviewer 2 represents the absolute worst of the peer review system. They don't read the paper properly, they're overly critical or often downright rude, and always have a huge list of unreasonable demands. There are Facebook pages and Twitter handles devoted to complaining about Reviewer 2, as well as countless memes, my personal favourite being Go Back to the Shadow, Reviewer 2. But even though these pages make light of the problem, there is a serious issue underlining them. I'll start by saying the majority of our interactions with researchers is perfectly civil, very pleasant, very collaborative and constructive. This is Mina Razak, the editorial director at Nature Reviews. But I had handled on my team a few papers where some of the, the language and the discourse was just fraught with unhelpful language and unfair criticisms. And that, that was in the peer review process from the referees towards the author, but also uh, between the author and the editor. For Mina, this culminated in an incident with some authors after her team had taken the difficult decision to reject their review paper. The angry email that came back from the authors was, was terrible. Uh, one author come back to us with a lot of vitriol uh, about how we let them down and that they did a lot of work. And then another of the authors replied all with us still on the email chain. And essentially it just turned into the authors complaining about us and saying that we were the patron saints of the blind and we didn't know what we were doing. And it, it was unnecessary. It was difficult to take. We thought it was unfair as well. And it doesn't actually help science. And that's that just sort of that experience. And then the few others around that got me thinking about this. And that's when I started talking to my colleagues to ask them, you know, is this something that you've experienced? Is this happening more? What can we do about it? After speaking with colleagues, Mina found that most editors had stories of similar experiences at some point in their careers, either with rude reviewers or with abrasive authors. But it isn't something that's talked about very much. Part of me feels that, you know, we spend a lot of time as editors thinking about papers and how to promote science and get these papers across the finish line and into the public domain. We are champions of papers and we think a lot about author service. So when an author complains and in that kind of way, it feels like a failure. So there may be some element of shame or I didn't do my job right and I've made a mistake and I think that's at least one of the reasons why we haven't talked about this as an industry. So what we ended up doing is we decided to do a little bit of an informal small survey amongst our teams. And I guess the results kind of 
back up what I've been saying is that the vast majority of our interactions are positive, but about a fifth of editors at Nature said that they had experienced some sort of unfriendly or hostile, sometimes abusive language in the course of making a decision. This survey suggests that this kind of behaviour isn't exactly uncommon. I reached out to Nature editor Carl Ziemlis to get his take. We have to be mindful. Reviewers are very busy. They're usually doing the task of peer review on the side from their regular work. Some would say it's a, a rewardless and thankless task as well. But, you know, it is part of the scientific discussion. And really, it should be kept at a civil and at a friendly level. But at the same time, it should be critical and challenging. That's how science operates. Um, but criticism isn't necessarily hostile. It can be challenging without being rude. You know, it's one thing to draw attention to that problem and explain why that is a problem. It is another thing to say the authors do not know what they're talking about. That's that's when you're moving into personal hostility more than anything else. So what's the best way to deal with reviewers or authors who cross the line during the peer review process? I think that there are probably at least two things that can be done here. Um, the first is on the part of the editor. If they see such behavior, then I think working with the reviewer to edit the comments to remove the potentially inflammatory remarks can, can only help because at the end of the day, you want the discussion between the reviewers and the authors to be a civil discussion. You want it to concentrate on the science. Uh, what you don't want it to do is to descend into a war of words. But I would also say there's a responsibility on the part of the authors as well. Seeing some comments which either rightly or wrongly they're interpreting interpreting as unduly hostile is not to respond in kind to take the high ground in addition to that i think just making it as clear as possible to the reviewers that really we want to keep this civil and most reviewers fully understand that one suggestion along these lines would be to create something like a code of conduct or a set of ethical guidelines which authors and reviewers are expected to stick to but what about another approach of making peer review reports more transparent? Nature policy is that reviewers do have the option of signing their reports if they feel comfortable doing so. So would de-anonymizing or publishing these encourage people to play nice? I think that the ideas behind open peer review are valid and they're definitely worth exploring. I think that one of the criticisms or one of the concerns is that you may find very weak or diluted comments to avoid almost the opposite, to avoid offending and to avoid causing conflict. So I think it's something that we should study. I would like to see more on it, understand the behaviors of researchers. I think one of the things that editors can do is, you know, we should call that kind of behavior out. Something that Mina and Carl both agree on is the importance of an open discussion about issues like these, so that people feel like they can speak out if they have bad experiences, and to help foster a culture of respect that ultimately makes science a nicer, more inclusive place to work. I think it's absolutely important that such issues are discussed because only by doing so will we potentially a raise awareness of what is and isn't acceptable behaviour. Some may say it's common sense, but for some people, presumably it isn't common sense. But also as individuals to challenge ourselves to it's all very well critiquing and challenging others, but just taking a step back and looking at how we behave ourselves as individuals and say, is this really appropriate? That was Nature Editor Carl Zemelis. You also heard from Mina Rizak, editor at Nature Reviews. 
Nature's put out an editorial on civility during peer review, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's again time to look at some other non-corona science news, highlighted in the Nature Briefing. That's Nature's daily pick of science news and stories. Shamley, what have you found this time? So there have been a couple of articles, both in Nature this week, about what researchers are doing to try and combat racism in policing. So the first article is about how researchers are trying to, and have been trying to, collect data and use science to to get some evidence-based policies to stop racism in the police force, and in particular, obviously, situations which end up with people dead or injured. And and so what does this data reveal? Like, what sort of techniques can police use? Well, actually, the main point of the story is kind of that there is a lack of this data and studies at the moment. So particularly in recent years, so particularly since since 2014, when Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson um, and Eric Garner was killed in New York, people have been sort of doing a lot more research. And there is data about the racial differences in if you are black versus white in America, you are more likely to be killed by police. If you get shot by police and you're black, you are twice as likely to be unarmed. So there's definitely data showing the scope of the problem. But what there isn't so much of yet is data that could suggest how to improve it. And one of the reasons for that is that different police departments providing data, that's sort of voluntary. So it's so far actually been difficult to get enough data and to get a broad range of data. Okay, so there may be a dearth of some of this data, but from the data we have, what are the results showing? Well, so one way to get around the lack of data is to use sort of sophisticated algorithms and models. So one of the things people are doing are looking at sort of correlative factors, what situations end up with, you know, with guns being fired or with excessive force being used. So it might be looking at the race of the police officers called to a scene. And that seems to be correlated with if it's a black or white neighbourhood, white officers in a black neighbourhood, those situations are more likely to end up in the officers firing their guns. And the other thing that was mentioned a lot is using body cameras. So there's some sort of conflicting evidence on this, but it seems like a sort of consistent use of body cameras is something that can help. But the important conclusion is that we need to make sure that whatever policies are made, as with everything, that these are evidence-based policies. Right. So I guess more data needed, but we have some insights from what we've got so far. And what was the second story? What did that talk about? So the second story is similar. It's about a group of mathematicians in the United States. And they have written a letter basically saying that they and their mathematician colleagues should stop collaborating with police because of these issues of racism in law enforcement agencies, again, in in the US. And in particular, the kind of thing that the mathematicians might be working on are things like predictive policing algorithms. So predictive policing algorithms, are these like minority report where they're trying to predict where crimes are going to happen? What's that about? Yeah, no, that's basically it. So for example, in recent years, there have been algorithms developed to look at huge amounts of data and help police reduce crime by perhaps suggesting where a crime is most likely to occur and then you can put more resources into that particular area. But there's sort of been debates going on already about how useful that is 
and about whether there could be actual biases in the data that these algorithms are already being fed. So, for example, if you're looking at reports of drug crimes, police respond to a lot more drug crimes in black communities, even though the rate of drug use is estimated to be the same in black and white communities. So if the algorithm gets fed data that includes that, then it might form a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy or a feedback loop where there's more crime and therefore the police focus on that and therefore report more crime. Oh, right. So it's almost doubling down on where crimes are. But I wonder, though, if mathematicians don't get involved in this, is there a concern that these things will just be done anyway? Yeah, so it's tricky because you don't want to say, let's not get science involved. Um, But the worry that these mathematicians have is that their work is sort of lending this veneer of respectability and, and, oh, yes, it's scientific. And that's kind of burying the actual racism that is at the core of many problems, which is what they don't want to be a part of. Are there any solutions for this? Yeah, so several researchers quoted in this piece are concerned that both mathematicians and people from other fields do need to come together to, to make sure that these kind of problems are countered and to make sure that researchers can engage with communities and can benefit in a a positive way. Well, hopefully researchers are able to come together to find some sort of solution to this. But for my story this week, scientists may, may have found a hint of dark matter. Uh, Have I heard this story before? Does this just happen every so often? (laughs) It definitely seems to be something that crops up every now and again. Like scientists say they found a bit of dark matter. And I did emphasise the May there a little bit because it's definitely not confirmed. But basically, there's this huge experiment which has this giant vat of xenon, essentially. And this is a noble gas, so it doesn't react with much. And what you're able to do because of that is monitor it to see if there's any weird ripples in it to see if anything's interacting with it. And that can be an indication of things like dark matter. So... Are these ripples, is there dark matter floating through our xenon tanks or is this sort of some faint signal of some distant dark matter? So what this might be is a hypothetical dark matter particle called an axion. So this has never been proven to exist, but this could be good evidence for it. However, the researchers do also say there are two other possibilities. These ripples could be caused by a novel property of neutrinos, which is something that physicists would also get super excited about because it's never been seen before. Or, and this is probably the scenario which is most likely, it could just be contamination. can't believe you've let me get this excited and then said, oh, but it's probably just contamination. <laughs> um, but I mean, there, there must be, they must think that there is a, a chance that this could be the, the real thing, right? Yeah, I think they're just being really cautious, as scientists often are, and they're just waiting for confirmation. So what they're doing is they're getting an even bigger xenon tank to monitor this to see if this is replicated, if they have these excess ripples again which would be indicative of maybe this particle of dark matter or a novel property of neutrinos that is physicists answer to everything builds a bigger detector (laughs) i mean when is that ever not a solution (laughs) well thanks again for chatting to me sharmini and listeners we'll put links to everything we discussed in the show notes and if you're interested in more but instead as an email delivered daily then make sure you check out the nature briefing we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well that's all for this week if you want to get in touch with us then you can reach us on twitter we're at nature podcast or send us an email we're podcast at nature.com i'm sharmini bundell 
And I'm Nick Howe. See you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.